We are coming to the close of George or Orwell's Animal Farm, second to last chapter, chapter nine. Now, this chapter is going to show us that us the utter evil of the pigs and their oppression is beginning to become a stark reality for the animals of the farm. So buckle up, enjoy. This is a bit of a longer chapter. This is Gene, and you're listening to Dumbasses Talking Politics. Hey, hey, this is Gene. Hope you guys are having a great weekend. Here's our little Sunday event, Chapter 9 of George Orwell's Animal Farm. This is a long chapter, and I've got a ton to say about it. So let's not waste too much time, and let's get into it. Chapter 9, here we go. Boxer Split Hoof was a long, way, long time in healing. They had started the rebuilding of the windmill the day after the victory celebrations were ended. Boxer refused to take even a day off work and made it a point of honor not to let it be seen that he was in pain. In the evenings, he, could, he would admit privately to Clover that the hoof troubled him a great deal. Clover treated the hoof with poultices of herbs which she prepared by chewing them, and both she and Benjamin urged Boxer to work less hard. A horse's lungs do not last forever, she said to him, but Boxer would not listen. He had, he said, only one real ambition, to see the windmill well underway before he reached the age of retirement. At the beginning, when the laws of Animal Farm were first formulated, the retiring age had been fixed for horses and pigs at 12, for cows at 14, for dogs at 9, for sheep at 7, and for hens and geese at 5. Liberal old-age pensions had been agreed upon, as yet no animal had actually retired on pension, but of late the subject had been discussed more and more. Now that the small field beyond the orchard had been set aside for barley, it was rumored that a corner of that large pasture was to be fenced off and turned into a grazing ground for super supernated animals. For a horse, it was said, the pension would be five pounds of corn a day and, in winter, 15 pounds of hay, with a carrot or possibly an apple on the public holidays. Boxer's 12th birthday was due in the late summer of the following year. This is just a flat-out lie. This is crap. There's no pension. There's no retirement age. There is no lush green pasture for those who are too old to work. It's all crap. And we're going to find out a little bit about this later. Let's continue. Meanwhile, life was hard. The winter was as cold as the last one had been, and the food was even shorter. Once again, all rations were reduced, except those for the pigs and the dogs. A too rigid equality in rations, Squealer explained, would have been contrary to the principles of animalism. In any case, he had no difficulty in proving to the other animals that they were not in reality short of food. Whatever the appearances might be, for the time being, certainly, it had been found necessary to make a readjustment of rations. Squealer always spoke of it as a readjustment, never as a reduction. But in comparison with the days of Jones, the improvement was enormous. Reading out figures in a shrill, rapid voice, he proved to them in detail that they were, there were more oats, more hay, more turnips than they had had in Jones's day that they had worked shorter hours and that their drinking water was of better quality, that they lived longer and that larger portion of their young ones survived infancy, and they had more straw in their stalls and suffered less from fleas. This is a common uh, tragedy in communist and tyrannical uh, countries. It's starvation and famine. 
And typically what the tier, tier, uh, the tyrannical actually do is they just lie to the people and say it is better. Now, again, in a country, it's a little easier to do that because there are more people that will actually listen. Uh, maybe my bad fortune is because a bunch of other people have good fortune, things like that. So a lot of people believe it. But the reason of famine and starvation is because most countries are most of these countries are isolated and cannot produce what's necessary for the population. It also is because the population must perform other tax tasks outside of their normal duties, which should be to raise food, raise cattle, things of that nature. And you see that in animal farm with the animals having to not only get food, but they also have to rebuild the windmill. Um, the pigs are both blind to this and they turn away. They don't think that's hard. It's as bad as all that because the pigs are satisfied. Communist countries have suffered from starvation and famine leading to the deaths of tens of thousands, including China under Mao, the Soviet Union under Stalin, Cuba under Castro, North Korea under the Kim family, and, and most recently Venezuela under the Chavez-Maduro regimes. By the way, Orwell is specifically talking about communist governments, but this is really about tyrannical governments. We're going to talk about that at the end of this. Mao's, the Stalin, the Kim family, Castro, Chavez, and Maduro were actually all dictators. Uh, communism was just what they wanted to fall under. The animals believed every word of it. Truth to tell, Jones and all he stood for had almost faded out of their memories. They knew that life nowadays was harsh and bare, that they were often hungry and often cold, and they were usually working when they were not asleep. But doubtless, it had been worse in the old days. They were glad to believe so. Besides, in those days, they had been slaves, and now they were free. And that made all the difference, as Squealer did not fail to point it out. Now, this is an interesting, this is, this is kind of an interesting thing. They were all free. This is the great lie we are being told today. When life is dictated by a government, especially a tyrannical government, one can never be free. Suffering, risk, and hard work are part of freedom. There's a chance you could succeed. There's a chance you can fail. But you have the opportunity as an individual to get that. When the government is controlling everything, when the government controls everything, but there are no rewards for success. Uh, we will get to that example with Boxer, the hardest worker on the farm later in this chapter. There were so many more mouths to feed now. In the autumn, the four sows had all littered about, all littered about simultaneously, producing 31 young pigs between them. The young pigs were piebald, and as Napoleon was the only boar on the farm, it was, it was possible to guess at their parentage. It was announced that later, when bricks and timber had been purchased, a schoolroom would be built in the farmhouse. For the time being, the young pigs were to be given their instruction by Napoleon himself in the farmhouse kitchen. They took their exercise in the garden and were discouraged from playing with the other young animals. About this time, too, it was laid down as a rule that when a pig and any other animal met on the path, the other animal must stand aside, and also that all pigs, of whatever decree, were to have the privilege of wearing green ribbons on their tails on Sundays. 
This is, again, very common. This is creating the upper and the lower class. Now, not all the pigs are going to be government officials. The sows weren't. And probably not all of the piglets are going to be part of the upper class. But the pigs were being segregated from the rest of the population because they were better and the other animals were below them. What's worse, the animals now had to work harder to build not only the windmill, but now a schoolhouse for the pigs, and they had to get a uh, farm for food. The only, the only animals that are benefiting right now, purely the pigs. And it really is kind of a tragedy that uh, these animals are just, they basically are slaves. There's no difference now. The farm had had a fairly successful year, but was still short of money. There were the bricks, sand, and lime for the schoolroom to be purchased, and it would also be necessary to begin saving up again for the machinery for the windmill. Then there were lamp oil and candles for the house, sugar for Napoleon's own table. He forbade this to the other pigs on the ground that it made them fat. And all of the usual replacements, such as tools, nails, string, coal, wire, scrap iron, and dog biscuits. A stump of hay and part of a potato crop were sold off, and the contract for eggs had increased to 600 a week. So that year, the hens barely hatched enough chicks to keep their numbers at the same level. Rations, re rations reduced in December were reduced again in February. The lanterns in the stalls were forbidden to save oil. But the pigs seemed comfortable enough, and, and in fact, were putting on weight, if anything. One afternoon in the late February of warm, rich, appetizing scent, such as animals had never smelt before, wafted itself across the yard from the little brew house, which had been disgust, disused in, in Jones's time, and which stood beyond the kitchen. Someone said it was the smell of cooking barley. The animals sniffed the air hungrily and wondered whether a warm mash was being prepared for their supper. But no warm mash appeared, and on the following Sunday it was announced that from now onwards all barley would be reserved for the pigs. The field beyond the orchard had already been sown with barley, and the news soon leaked that every pig was now receiving a ration of a pint of beer daily and half a gallon for Napoleon himself, which was, which has, was always served to him the Crown Derby Soup Tureen. Pure tone deafness by pig leadership, or they just didn't care. With the animals starving and not enough food being grown, the pigs take up much needed fertile land to grow barley for their luxury of beer. Really kind of sad that, that happens. Okay, continuing on. But if there were hardships to be borne, they were partly offset by the fact that life nowadays had a greater dignity than it had had before. There were more songs, more speeches, more processions. Napoleon had commanded that once a week there should be held something called a spontaneous demonstration, the object of which was to celebrate the struggles and triumphs of Animal Farm. At the point, appointed time, the animals would leave their work and march around the precincts of the farm in military formation with the pigs leading, then the horses, then the cows, then the sheep, and then the poultry. The dogs flanked the procession, and at the head of the head all marched Napoleon's black, at the head of all marched Napoleon's black cockerel, his uh, rooster. 
Boxer and Clover always carried between them a green banner marked with the hoof and the horn and the caption, Long Live Comrade Napoleon. Afterwards, there were recitations of poems composed in Napoleon's honor and a speech by Squealer, Squealer giving particulars of the latest increases in the productions of foodstuffs. And on occasion, a shot was fired from the gun. The sheep were the greatest devotees of the spontaneous demonstrations. And if anyone complained, and few animals sometimes, and as a few animals sometimes did when no pigs or dogs were near, that they wasted time and meant a lot of standing about in the cold, the sheep were sure to silence them with tremendous bleeding of four legs good, two legs bad. But by the large, by and large, the animals enjoyed these celebrations. They found it comforting to be reminded that, after all, they were truly their own masters, and that the work they did was for their own benefit. So that, what with the songs, the processions, squealers' lists of figures, the thunder of the gun, the crowing of the cockerel, and the fluttering of the flag, they were able to forget that their bellies were empty, at least part of the time. This is a prime example of military parades that you see in governments. Now, typically, government leaders are military-based. Uh, Lenin, kind of an example of a man that wasn't, but Stalin was a military leader. Castro was a military, military leader. Um, uh, the first Kim was actually a military leader. So what this has done is it's to instill pride for their citizens. It's also to instill respect from their citizens, the respect that we are a power. And it's also meant to actually instill a little fear in their enemies. Though the animals didn't have a vast army and large missiles like you'd see in the Soviet Union, China, and North Korea to show their strength, I think the firing of the gun could be intended by Orwell to show that type of intimidation. In April, Animal Farm was proclaimed a republic, and it became necessary to elect a president. There was only one candidate, Napoleon, who was elected unanimously, duh. On the same day, it was given out that fresh documents had been discovered, which revealed further details about Snowball's complicity with Jones. It now appeared that Snowball had not, as the animals had previously imagined, merely attempted to lose the Battle of Cowshed by means of stratagem, but had, but had been openly fighting on Jones's side. In fact, it was he who had actually been the leader of the human forces and had charged into battle with the words, long live humanity, on his lips. The wounds, sorry about that, I don't know what that was. The wounds on Snowball's back, which a few of the animals still remember to have seen, had been inflicted by Napoleon's teeth. Oh, wow. Um, do you ever notice that tyrannical governments, especially communist governments, but most dictatorships, whatever tyrannical government you look like, they always refer to themselves as a democracy or a democratic republic or a republic, even though they are clearly totalitarian, communists, or dictatorships. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, that's the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of North Korea, the People's Republic of China, the German Democratic Republic, 
that's East Germany, which was under the Soviet Union back in the 90s. None of these countries practiced the political systems of a republic or a democracy. This was done just simply to confuse. That's all it was. Um, also, we see the continual erosion of history. I mean, now Stovall has gone and become completely vilified. This is going to need to be continued by Napoleon because his people are suffering, his people are slaves, and he must continue the idea with that us and them mentality, that revolutionary mentality. That's one of the reasons to actually run the parades in the first place. Continue. In the middle of summer, Moses, the raven, suddenly reappeared on the farm after an absence of several years. He was quite unchanged, still did no work, and talked in the same strain as ever about Sugar Candy Mountain. Remember, that's that animal's version of heaven. He would perch on a stump, flap his black wings, and talk about talk by the hour to anyone who would listen. Up there, comrades, he would say solemnly, pointing to the sky with his large black beak. Up there, just on the other side of the dark cloud that you see, there it lies, Sugar Candy Mountain, the ha that happy country where we poor animals shall rest forever from our labors. He even claimed to have been there on one of his higher flights, and to have seen the everlasting fields of clover and linseed cake and lump sugar growing on the hedges. Many, many of the animals believed him. Their lives, now, they reasoned, were hungry and laborious. Was it not right and just that a better world should exist somewhere else? A thing that was difficult to determine was the attitude of the pigs towards Moses. They all declared contemptuously that his stories about Sugar Candy Mountain were lies. And yet they allowed him to remain on the farm, not working, with an allowance of a gill of beer per day. This is metaphor is actually pretty ob obvious. Uh, Moses represents the Moses from the Old Testament who led the Jews out of slavery from the Egyptians and to the promised land. This could be a rebuke at the rejection of animals for disavowing their God, or God in uppercase or lowercase, for the promises of earthly material things, also known as utopia, heaven and earth. What is disturbing here is that Moses is actually a, he is someone who's giving them hope. So what's the best way the pigs have? Actually making Moses tell them there is no sugar candy field and disavowing God, that would not work. So what did they do? They paid him off with beer. It's really a very cynical look. Now, I'm not sure I like that Orwell added this metaphor into this book. I like the fact that he shows the corruption and how they... I'm not really sure where he went with this. I mean, I understand he was showing the corruption of other animals. As far as I'm concerned, it's too little too late. And it's not something, the sugar candy fields has not been something he brought up since the beginning of the book. Not to mention, it was very little to do with the conclusion of the book. Outside of showing the corruption that the pigs are doing to keep 
the people or the animals calm on the farm. It's almost as if Orwell wanted to add basically another page to his book. So I'm not completely sure I liked him adding to this. It, it just didn't really bring a lot. If, if the pigs had had made major efforts to dismiss Sugar Candy Field and to actually ban the belief in Sugar Candy Field, that might have been something because that's what happened. Uh, that's what happens with Marx. That's what happened with Lenin. That's what happens with the Kim family in North Korea. I can get that, but I just have a real hard time seeing why that's actually in this book. Now we're going to go through uh, quite a bit of reading before we get to our next commentary. Uh, but this is this is big. This is actually pretty important. So listen up and enjoy. At least you don't have to hear me rattle on about something. After his hood hoof had healed up, Boxer worked harder than ever. Indeed, all the animals worked like slaves that year. Apart from the regular work of the farm and the rebuilding of the windmill, there was the schoolhouse for the young pigs, which was started in March. Sometimes the long hours on insufficient food were hard to bear, but Boxer never faltered. In nothing that he said or did was there any sign that his strength was not what it had been. It was only his appearance that was a little altered. His hide was less shiny than it had used to be, and his great haunches seemed to have shrunken. The other said, Boxer will pick up when the spring grass comes. But the spring came and Boxer grew no fatter. Sometimes on the slope leading to the top of the quarry, when he braced his muscles against the weight of some vast boulder, it seemed that nothing kept him on his feet except the will to continue. At such times, his lips were seen to form the words, I will work harder. He had no voice left. Once again, Clover and Benjamin warned him to take care of his health, but Boxer paid no attention. His twelfth birthday was approaching. He did not care what happened so long as a good food store of stone was accumulated before he went on his pension. Late one evening in the summer, a sudden rumor ran around the farm that something had happened to Boxer. He had gone out alone to drag a load of stone down the, to the windmill, and sure enough, the rumor was true. A few minutes later, two pigeons came racing in with news. Boxer has fallen. He's lying on the side and can't get up. About half the animals on the farm rushed out to the knoll where the windmill stood. There lay Boxer, between the shafts of the cart, his neck stretched out, unable to even raise his head. His eyes were glazed, his sides matted with sweat. A thin stream of blood trickled out of his mouth. Clover dropped to her knees at the side of Boxer. Boxer, she cried, how are you? It is my lung, said Boxer in a weak voice. It does not matter. I think you will be able to finish the windmill without me. There is a pretty good store of stone accumulated. I had only another month to go in any case. To tell you the truth, I had been looking forward to my retirement. And perhaps, as Benjamin is growing old too, they will let him retire at the same time and be a companion to me. We must get help at once, said Clover. Run, somebody, and tell Squealer what has happened. All the animal, other animals immediately raced back to the farmhouse to give Squealer the news. Only Clover remained, and Benjamin, who lay down at Boxer's side, and without speaking, kept the flies off of him with his long tail. After about a quarter of an hour, Squealer appeared, full of sympathy and concern. Mind you, uh, just, just a quick comment. About a quarter of an hour later, 
In other words, it wasn't that important that Squealer didn't see this. Is that really important or he would have shown up right away? He, Squealer said that no, Comrade Napoleon had learned with the very deepest distress of his misfortune to one of the most loyal workers on the farm and was already making arrangements to send Boxer to be treated at the hospital in Willingdon. The animals felt little uneasy at this, except for Molly and Snowball. No other animal had ever left the farm, and they did not like to think that there was a sick comrade in the hands of human beings. However, Squealer easily convinced them that the veterinary surgeon in Willingdon could treat Boxer's case more satisfactorily than could be done on the farm. And about a half hour later, when Boxer was somewhat recovered, he was with he was with difficulty got on his feet and managed to limp back to his stall where Clover and Benjamin had prepared a good bed of straw for him. The next two days, Boxer remained in his stall. The pigs had sent out a large bottle of pink medicine, which they had found in the medicine chest in the bathroom, and Clover administered it to Boxer twice a day after meals. In the evening, she lay in the stall and talked to him while Benjamin kept the flies off of him. Boxer professed not to be sorry for what had happened. If he made a good recovery, he might expect to live another three years, and he looked forward to the peaceful days that he would spend in the corner of the big pasture. It would be the first time that he had had leisure to study and improve his mind. He intended, he said, to devote the rest of his life to learning the remaining 22 letters of the alphabet. However, Benjamin and Clover could only be with Boxer after working hours, and it was in the middle of the day when the band came to take him away. The animals were all at work weeding turnips under the supervision of a pig when they were astonished to see Benjamin come galloping from the direction of the farm building, braying at the top of his voice. It was the first time that they had ever seen Benjamin excited. Indeed, it was the first time that anyone had ever seen him gallop. Quick, quick, he shouted. Come at once. They're taking Boxer away. Without waiting for, mortar, for orders from the pig, the animals broke off work and raced back to the farm buildings. Sure enough, there in the yard, a large closed van drawn by two horses was with lettering on the side and a sly-looking man in a low-crowned bowler hat sitting in the driver's seat. And Boxer's stall was empty. The animals crowded around the van. Goodbye, Boxer, they chorused. Goodbye, fools, fools, shouted Benjamin prancing around them and stamping the earth with his small hooves. Fools, do you not see what is written on the side of the van? That gave the animals a pause, and there was a hush. Muriel began to spell out the words, but Benjamin pushed her aside, and in the midst of the deadly silence, he read, Alfred Simmons, horse slaughterer and glue boiler, Willington, dealer in hides and bone meal, kennel supplied. Do you not understand what this means? They're taking Boxer to the knackers. A cry of horror burst from all the animals. At this moment, the man on the box whipped up the horses and the van moved out of the yard at a small trot. All the animals followed, crying out at the tops of their voices. Clover forced her way to the front. The van began to gather speed. Clover tried to stir her, snout, her stout limbs to, to a gallop and achieved a canter. Boxer, she cried, boxer, boxer, boxer. And just at this moment, as though he had heard the uproar outside, Boxer's face 
with the white stripe down his nose, appeared at the small window at the back of the van. Boxer, cried Clover in a terrible voice. Boxer, get out, get out immediately. They're taking you to your death. All the animals took up the cry to get out of get out, Boxer, get out. But the van was stead already gathering speed and drawing away from them. It was uncertain whether Boxer had understood the, what Clover had said. But a moment later, his face disappeared from the window, and there was a sound of tremendous drumming from the hoofs inside. He was trying to kick his way out. The time had been when a few kicks from Boxer's hooves would have smashed the van into matchwood. But alas, his strength had left him. In a few moments, the sound of drumming hoofs grew fainter and died away. In desperation, the animals began appealing to the two horses which drew the van to a stop. Comrades, comrades, they shouted, don't take your own brother to his death. But the stupid brutes, too ignorant to realize what was happening, merely set back their ears and quickened their pace. Boxer's face did not reappear in the window. Too late, someone thought of racing ahead and shutting the five-barred gate. But in another moment, the van was through it and rapidly disappearing down the road. Boxer was never seen again. This is probably the second most powerful scene in the entire book. Boxer was a devout follower, almost a religious follower. This might explain the religious context with Moses a little bit earlier. But when his value to the collective ran its course, he was banished and his body, which had been had three years left of life, was used to profit the farm, leading to his death. See, the collective only sees people as commodities that are there to serve the collective. When the commodity cannot provide for the collective, it's cast away. To the tyrannical, to the tyrannical collective, in this case communism, people are things that can be discarded. And age is not excuse, not an excuse to value. Three days later, it was announced that he had died in the hospital at Willingdon in spite of receiving every attention a horse could have. Squealer came to announce the news to the others. He had, he said, been presented during Boxer's last hours. It was the most affecting sight I have ever seen, said Squealer, lifting his trotter and wiping away a tear. I was at his bedside at the very last, and at the end, almost too weak to speak, he whispered in my ear that his sole sorrow was to have to pass on before the windmill was finished. Forward, comrades, he whispered. Forward in the name of the rebellion. Long live Animal Farm. Long live Comrade Napoleon. Napoleon is always right. Those were his last words, comrades. Here, Squealer's demeanor suddenly changed. He fell silent for a moment, and his little eyes darted suspicious glances from side to side before he proceeded. It had come to his knowledge, he said that a foolish and wicked rumor had been circulated at the time of Boxer's removal. Some of the animals had noticed that the van which took Boxer away was marked horse slaughterer and had actually jumped to the conclusion that Boxer was being sent to the knackers. It was almost unbelievable, said Squealer, that any animal could be so stupid. Surely, he cried indignantly, whisking his tail and skipping from side to side. Surely they knew their beloved leader, Comrade Napoleon, better than that. 
but the explanation was really quite simple. The van had previously been the property of a knacker and had been bought by the veterinary surgeon who had not yet painted the old name out. That was how the mistake had risen. The animals were enormously relieved to hear this. How many of these, how many of you actually think the animals believe this bullshit now? And when Squealer went on to give further graphic details of Boxer's deathbed, the admirable care he had received and the expensive medicines for which Napoleon had paid without thought as to the cost, their last doubts disappeared and the sorrow that they felt for their comrade's death was tempered by the thought that at least he had died happy. Napoleon himself appeared at the meeting on the following Sunday morning and pronounced a short oration in Boxer's honor. It had not been possible, he said, to bring back the lamented comrade's remains for internment on the farm, but he had ordered large, a large wreath to be made from the laurels of the farmhouse garden and sent down to be replaced on Boxer's grave. And in a few days' times, the pigs intended to hold a memorial banquet in Boxer's honor. Napoleon ended his speech with a reminder of Boxer's two favorite maxims, I will work harder, and Comrade Napoleon is always right. Maxims, he said, which every animal would do well to adopt. Uh, just a little FYI, if you didn't get it, that was a threat. A warning, all dissenters will face the lash, the gulag, or the guillotine. Let's carry this to the end now. On the day appointed for the banquet, a grocer's van drove up from Willingdon and delivered a large wooden crate at the farmhouse. That night, there was a sound of uproarious singing, which was followed by what sounded like a violent quarrel and ended at about 11 o'clock with tremendous crash of glass. No one stirred in the farmhouse before noon on the following day, and the word went around that from somewhere or other, the pigs had acquired the money to buy themselves another case of whiskey. Um, it just the cruelty of the pigs just cannot be. You cannot even understand. And by the way, Lenin, uh, not Lenin, but Stalin used to do this. There's a great movie, and it's actually quite accurate, called The Death of Stalin. And Stalin, with his Politburo, would actually, and it was Politburo was made up of five or six guys, would actually get together every night and party. And one of the Politburo uh, members was a guy named Beria. And what Beria would do is he would get a list from Stalin and then right in the middle of the party, Beria would leave, give that list to the um, uh, the NKVD, which is the Soviet, which is actually Stalin's police force. And the NKVD would go out and pick people off and kill them or send them to the gulags. So this is I, I think this is actually. Uh, Orwell making fun of that. I also want to say something to conclude this chapter. Uh, in this book, Orwell is trying to convey the evils of communism. But you'll notice I rarely talk about communism when we were annotating this book. I talk mostly of the tyrant and tyranny. I do this because the country he is referring to, specifically the Soviet Union, was not really a true communist or Marxist country. Neither are many of the other communist countries out there. They are dictatorships. They may have started as, as a communist country, but 
eventually they turned into one guy rules them all, and that's a dictatorship. Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Castro, Chavez, the King, Kim family, Maduro, uh, Hitler, Mussolini were all dictators that practiced either a socialist or fascist economic system. They were no different than open dictators like Bashir al-Assad in, um, uh, in Syria or Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, Napoleon in France or Genghis Khan in, in Mongolia. There's no difference. Remember, tyranny is about power, and power can only belong to one, and it must be protected by the tyrant and by the fools that actually follow him. Okay, that was a pretty good chapter, and we didn't actually didn't take that long. You can follow me on Twitter at RunninFool, R-U-N-N-I-N-F-E-W-L. You can download or listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addicts, Stitcher, and YouTube. Uh, you can visit my website at www.dumbassestalkingpolitics.com, where you can actually read my show notes. This is Gene, and you've listened to Dumbasses Talking Politics. Mm-hmm.